We're going to be in Matthew 21 today, and uh, reading the first 17 verses together. But it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible or or a smart device. Um, Jesus uh, actually, like today's story, actually comes from the year 30, uh, like AD 30, and uh, it is uh, Jesus is likely in his 33rd year of life. He was such an amazing guy. He was born three to five years BC. Uh, which only Jesus could be born before himself. Um, but there's some, archae- <laughs> some archaeological changes that show that they got it wrong originally, and rather than change the year, they changed when Jesus was actually born. So um, Jesus is uh, living in what we call the modern nation of Israel, and it was at that time as well, in the year 30. And he's been on this walk towards Jerusalem. The Gospels say, actually say he set his face toward Jerusalem. This was his goal. This was where he was going. And he was going there in Matthew chapter 20. He tells his disciples that he's going there because he's going to be betrayed into the hands of the religious authorities and they're going to put him to death. And then he's going to rise from the dead. And and they tell him, like Jesus tells his disciples these things and it doesn't totally make sense. Obviously, if someone told you that, you'd be like confused by it and things like that. But you'd try to Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem, and there's this large crowd gathering, and people are excited about it because he's been teaching mostly in the countryside. At the very beginning of his ministry, he did some things in Jerusalem, but then he did most of his work in the countryside, and really north of Jerusalem for the most part. And now he's moving to the capital city for this major confrontation. In the capital city of Jerusalem, which is the capital of the Jewish people, which is, they would be called like a religious and a political center because it is, those things aren't separate in Jesus' day. It is actually ruled over by the Roman Empire, which is the largest and most powerful empire that they've ever seen on earth. And so the Roman Empire set up a governor, Pilate, and then they set up like a puppet king so the Jews could have their own king, and that was Herod Agrippa, who is the son of Herod the Great. And, uh, Uh, Herod Agrippa, and so you know, Herod the Great gave himself that name. Nobody else did. Uh, Herod Agrippa, like his Herod the Great's dominion was divided between his three sons, and Herod Agrippa was uh, in charge of Jerusalem, and he was uh, completely mental, just like crazy as far as what he would do and people he would have put to death, and really he carried on. Uh, the reign and the style of his father, uh, Herod the Great, if he thought one of his sons was trying to overtake him, he would have him put to death. You know, like, oh, you're too good of a leader. It's time for you to die. And so there's uh, just this paranoia and uh, issues that he had with the people around him. But so Jesus is going into this, and the center of the city of Jerusalem is this uh, thing called the temple. And the temple would be the center of the political and religious life uh, for the Jewish people. And the temple is this massive thing. If we have, I have a picture here that we can show you. This uh, huge center of worship. It was where uh, the people of God uh, met with their God and, and where, they conde- like where God's presence was or where heaven and earth intersected. This is from like a very small scale model. You can see in the background there's like sidewalks. So this doesn't exist anymore. And if you can go there, there's like one wall you can go and see and those kinds of things. But you can see the big outer wall. That 
took up between like 35 and 37 acres. It's kind of hard to totally know because uh, it was a couple thousand years ago. It was built, uh, it, well, like around 400, 500 BC uh, over a long period of time. And in AD 70, it was actually torn down by the Romans because of some revolts that uh, the Jewish people were doing and trying to overthrow the Roman rule. And so they squashed them to keep the peace of Rome, right? You see that's this awesome, this uh, huge area around the outside is called the court of the Gentiles, meaning anybody was allowed in there. Gentiles was a Jewish word for non-Jews, all right? So anybody was allowed in there. And then there's this wall. It was like a five-foot high wall uh, that had a specific name that if you were not Jewish, not an Israelite, and walked past that wall, it was punishable by death. And so they had actual people watching and making sure uh, that the people who came inside were Israelite or were Jewish. And then there's the small court. You see that tall building, the small court in front of there is called the court of the woman. And if you're a female, that's as far in as you ever got. And then to get through there would be, and there was actually those four little kind of shops in the corner. One is like the temple bank and one was for uh, people with leprosy. One was where they kept the wood because they would do all these sacrifices and needed to keep it burning. And one was, um, it's actually a barber shop because uh, people would have a Nazarite vow and they would get their hair cut there as a sign uh, that their vow was fulfilled. And so the woman would be in there, just all Jewish people, and then inside through those stairs and up into where that large tall building is would be the court of the men and you had to be male to get in there. And then inside of that would be a court of the priests and inside of that would be the Holy of Holies. And so the Gentile people were allowed to come in and were allowed to look but never go in there. And it was a, a clear message in their faith system that this is for, like, the Israelite people were chosen. And if you're not chosen, then you need to stay outside of this. And that there is a divide between the people that God prefers and the people he tolerates. So the people he allows to look in and see him and the people he actually embraces and allows them to come inside. And so in this court of the Gentiles, so, you know, the guy in charge, the high priests would all be ruling over this with the Sanhedrin and those kinds of things. And the high priests, and the Sadducees specifically, was the political party in charge of the temple. The Caiaphas was the name of the man who was in charge of the temple. And in the beginning of the year 30, uh, Caiaphas actually had some uh, reformations that streamlined things. At the time of Passover, which is when the story takes place, the Passover is going to be the weekend. The story today takes place the previous Sunday as people are starting to arrive. And uh, the Passover time, there would be so many sacrifices going on that they actually had, like, and, and this is a brutal, and you might find this offensive, but they would do animal sacrifices ritually as offerings to God as outlined in the Old Testament. This is how they lived. And they would know the Old Testament. And so they would do these sacrifices, and as they killed them, there was a trough with like a pipeline, and they would say that blood would like flow out of animal blood, would flow out that pipeline just like a constant flow because they were doing so many sacrifices. And so streamlining people's religious experience would be good for the temple. And so when people came to offer at the temple, if you had a monetary offering, you couldn't give Roman coins because they had a picture of the Caesar on them. And the Caesar had declared himself to be God, and so he couldn't after offer coins to this God with a picture of the other God on them. And so you'd have to switch to what was an acceptable coin, which is a Tyrian coin. And so you would have to go to the money changers because you didn't have these 
kind of, it would be like if you wanted pure money, so you went, you'd, like you had to change your money to Canadian money to give at church, right? <laughs> Just random example there, but, um, but so we didn't, if the, our churches didn't take dirty American money uh, because there's presidents on it or something, we wanted money with the queen on it, uh, that does, this illustration is falling apart, but... Uh, <laughs> But there is, they would have to make that exchange. And you know when you make an exchange, you have to pay a small fee. That's how that kind of works. And so there would be people there who would offer that service to people, and they would charge a small fee. And because this kind of changeover was dirty, it usually happened out of town, over in a town called Bethany and a town called Bethpage, which are kind of like the outskirts of, of what would be the urban center of uh, of Jerusalem. And so Caiaphas, wanting to streamline things, he actually brought the money changers, and they would also sell small animals. Because if you were really poor and didn't have animals, you could buy a pigeon uh, or a dove and actually offer that as a sacrifice. If you were wealthy, you'd bring the firstborn of your like of cows and sheep and goats and those kinds of things. You'd bring them with you and then offer your sacrifice. But then uh, if you're poor, you'd need to buy a, a dove at the place in order to offer this sacrifice. And so they would sell these things just outside of town. You would buy it and then carry it into town. Well, wouldn't it be more convenient if we just did all of that here? And so Caiaphas, in that large courtyard outside, created kind of a religious shopping mall. Think like loads and loads and loads of Christian bookstores that did money exchange and sold animals that you would kill in a minute. Kind of a depressing place for your pets. But <laughs> this... Um, he had all of this activity going on. And it wasn't like it was, um, nobody thought, hey, this is bad. Everybody thought, hey, this is convenient. This is efficient. I don't have to go all the way up to Bethpage, which is like a half hour walk, and I can just do my whole religious thing here, get it over with, God's appeased, good, all right. And the goal of what was going on in the temple seemed to be the ritual and the appeasement of God. Uh, which is where things start to fall apart. Um, if you know Jesus, he, he isn't into that. So let's start reading in chapter 21. We're going to read this story, and uh, I think there's some implications for us. Even if you're like uh, an atheist and don't believe in the divinity of Christ and those kinds of things, these are historical stories. Like this actually happened in the year 30. Uh, when Jesus walked in, um, we believe that there's some lot of spiritual truth that happens here because Jesus actually claims divinity. So if you don't believe that, then you have to believe he's nutty or a liar. So um, chapter 21 starts like this, and it's going to say they, now when they, and that's Jesus, his disciples, and the growing crowd that's following him. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you will say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Which is kind of a fantastic thing. If you need a car these days, apparently Jesus just wants you to take it. And if anybody says anything, just say, the Lord needs it. Uh, so you can see how that goes. This actually takes place to fulfill which was spoken, that which was spoken by the prophet, and this is the prophet Zechariah chapter 9, say to the daughter of Zion, the city of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed him, 
them. They brought the donkey and the colts and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Uh, And most of the crowd spread their cloaks out on the road, and others cut branches, these would be palm branches from the trees, and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This said, and the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus actually goes and gets a donkey and its colt, its young colt that has never been ridden, and goes and gets the, tells the disciples, go and do this. And whether this is a miraculous, like Jedi, the Lord needs them, or whether Jesus had sent someone else and previously set it up, who knows. But they get these animals, these beasts of burden for Jesus. He's walked 100 miles. He doesn't need to ride a donkey for the last mile. He gets on this donkey on purpose because everyone knew Zechariah 9, verse 9. In their culture, imagine a culture, and this will be like a dream for you, where we don't look up to celebrities, where athletes or Kardashians aren't our heroes, right? This is a better world. Um, But um, if we all looked up to, like they would have in Jesus' day, Old Testament prophets, when I grow up, I want to be like Elijah. When I grow up, I want to be like Zechariah, right? This is how young children would have talked. And so they would know what Zechariah, who prophesied in the Old Testament, they would know what he had prophesied. And he had prophesied that Israel, when your king comes, it will come riding on a donkey, humble, but it will come in to rule. Jesus knows that they're thinking this. And so Jesus says, go get a donkey, watch this gets on the donkey, rides into town. Why do people celebrate this? Because they know. And they've been thinking, Jesus, we really think it's time for you to take over. And Jesus gets on the donkey, and they're here in Jesus, who's saying, it's time. Jesus gets on the donkey and rides into Jerusalem so that everyone will know that he's the king of Jerusalem. This is like a military coup. Or, except Jesus didn't have any military might. He had a donkey. <laughs> but he rode into town, and the city starts throwing their cloaks on the ground. They start yelling, Hosanna, which means save us, please, or oh, save us. They're calling him the son of David. They're celebrating. They're putting palm branches down, and the palm branch would be like their, their symbol of victory and, and freedom. They're throwing all of these things down, saying there is a new king in town. Imagine how this goes if the current king in town is Herod Agrippa, who likes to kill people who oppose him. And learn that because that's his family way. And you're rolling into town, and everybody is declaring, and the whole city is stirred up, there's a new king here. It's this guy Jesus, he's from Nazareth. Who is it? It's him. All right, cool. Anybody's better than the current guy. And they throw this massive parade, massive celebration. Everybody is amped, all right? And you need to know this. This isn't like Jesus going, oh, me? Right? He isn't pulling a Taylor Swift. I'm surprised you all showed up, right? Like, uh, I'm not saying that drives me crazy, but I mean, come on, right? (laughs) You're surprised that all these people show up? All right, so... 
Jesus rolls into town purposely saying, hey, everyone, look, your king is here, and I'm that guy. I'm the new king. I'm in charge now. And the Gospel of Matthew has been pointing to this moment where Jesus rides in and tells the people who are in charge, you're not in charge anymore, I'm in charge. And all the people agree and are down with it and say, all right, Jesus is in charge, and throws this big celebration. And so if you roll into town, and if you're saying I'm in charge, there's only one place to go, right? It's the temple, because the temple is the center of, of everything, of their whole cultural life. And so Jesus gets on a donkey, rides into town, fulfills a prophecy on purpose, claims that he's now in charge of the city of Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple. And I'm not saying this is one of my, like, I'm not saying like this is my absolute favorite thing that Jesus ever does, but it's up there. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned, such a calm word, he calmly overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And so you know, I'm assuming they were sitting on the seats. And Jesus was kicking those seats, and they were falling. Like, and you don't get to see this in the movies, but Jesus was injuring personally people. They were filing workers' comp claims because Jesus was coming through and kicking their chairs out. And the money changers weren't like the fit guys who would be able to be, they were probably falling down quite hilariously, all right? So Jesus enters the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, of, excuse me, of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So Jesus goes into the temple because he's the king now and he directly confronts the reform that Caiaphas brought about. Caiaphas, who's the chief priest who's in charge of the temple, made a change. It would be like this. The pastor of our church introduced the Go Forward table. It's a new table, just started last week, that can help you uh, find ways to serve in our city or ways to serve in our church. Or if you stop by the Go table, uh, you can actually get, uh, if you're here and you're new, you bring your Go Pass to the Go table, you get a gift, right? And we have this little swag bag for you and, and we, with some information about our church. And then you can uh, get some Bible study materials or journaling things. We want you to grow spiritually. It'd be like if you showed up to church today and you learned that the leaders of our church did that last week and you didn't like it. And so you started picking those tables up and throwing them. Like this is a story that people are telling all right? This is people going, hey, what's all that banging? I don't want a coffee so much anymore. Let's go out here and see who the crazy person is throwing things, right? And there'd probably be someone that would step in to stop him. And apparently they couldn't stop Jesus. The same story is told in the Gospel of John, but it happens at the beginning of the ministry. And there's an argument over whether this is the same telling of, of the, or a different telling of the same story. John just tells things thematically instead of chronologically. Or if Jesus actually did this twice. And in the other stories, there's Jesus actually goes over in the corner and gets some rope. I don't know where he gets the rope. And he actually braids it to make a whip so he can hit people with it. <laughs> I'm just telling you what the story says. <laughs> so Jesus is in the corner. They're messing around the temple, and he's braiding this thing. 
And I like to think Jesus said unsavory things while he was doing that, like maybe quoting some Old Testament scripture, like, and the wrath of the Lord will pour out like vengeance or fire on the mountain, and the Lord will blah, 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 right? And the den of robbers, and you're right. Jesus' dad was a carpenter, so he probably heard these words before. And so <laughs> he turns around, and either this was like, this was a violent, aggressive, and not just a religious, but also a political and a systemic overthrow that Jesus was doing. And so you know, all the people there were just there to worship God. Like they were just there to switch their money out so they could give like the Bible said. And they wanted to buy the stupid pigeon so they could do the offering like the Bible said. And Jesus actually pulls the whole operation like it stops. Like the Jewish religion stops. Jesus ends it. Like it's, it's over now. He starts throwing things and clearing out the court of the Gentiles, that large court, they wouldn't have been selling things inside the Israelite court. They wouldn't, because the dirty money that they were switching out isn't allowed that far in. And so they would be switching out in the court of the Gentiles, and Jesus is throwing things. And you've got to wonder what the disciples are doing at this moment, because I know there's a couple disciples that are over on the side like, <laughs> are we letting you know, like, and there's other disciples that are like, I'm not sure this is a good idea, guys. Like, maybe we should have a meeting, you know, like. Jesus is always doing this crazy stuff. And, you know, so there's, and Peter's, you know, Peter, right? He's throwing things. And, like, this is, this mass chaos happens as Jesus throws out people who were supposed to be there. Jesus was attacking a religious system that was helping the people. No one there that day would have went, oh, good, finally. Everyone there would have said, now, now what am I supposed to, like, I came here to do my offering, and now it's all messed up. Are, are we resetting up outside the temple? Do I have to go over to Bethpage? What do I, like, I just, try to, I just want to be right with God. And Jesus pulls the whole religious system to a halt. That river of blood that flows would have stopped. If even for a moment, if even for a moment, Jesus stops the worship of God, and actually proclaims judgment on it, saying it's a den of thieves, a den of robbers, that they're taking advantage of the people, the poorest of the people. They're taking advantage of them, charging extra fees, making it cost more than it should to worship their God. Jesus pronounces judgment on the temple, which is, I don't know how you get more authority you roll into town, you proclaim yourself king, you go into the temple and say, now I'm in charge of this too. Jesus was declaring that he now rules. And so he begins to kick out all these people who were supposed to be there, the people who were connected to the system of power. And then, as Jesus does, this is verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, which is a save us. Well, the son of David would be, David was the great king, and so the son of David would be our next great king. Save us, O great king, is what they're saying about Jesus. 
they, the chief priests and the scribes, would be the religious lawyers, were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, have you never read? Uh, Which is great, because he's asking if they never read the Bible. And they're the religious leaders. Have you never read? And he quotes the Old Testament, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. He had friends that lived in Bethany and he actually would have stayed with them and the disciples would have stayed there and everything. Jesus rolls into town, clears out the people who are supposed to be there. And do you know who walks in? Lame people, blind people, people that are unclean and aren't able to get close to God. There were purification rituals. If you had a a disease or a deformity, you were not allowed close to God because God was pure and you weren't. And then children start rolling in. And so, you know, we think children are cute in their culture. That is not how it went down. Children did not have, like, special rights and weren't seen as nice or cute. They never had baby picture contests and things like that. (laughs) Children were the future and they were security because we're going to grow them up because they're going to take care of us later. And so when the children start running around causing chaos in their church, it's not seen as, or in their temple, sorry, it's not seen as, oh, this is so good. They have children who want to worship God, especially because the children are worshiping the God who's standing there and declaring Jesus to be king and that he has come to save us. Outside of the temple, so you know, the Romans built a garrison or a little small base and they built towers in there so they could see down into the temple because they couldn't always, they would, but they couldn't always walk around in the temple because there were actually uh, Israelite terrorist groups. They were called the Sicarii and they would actually assassinate Romans or Roman supporters and then sneak back into the crowd and and much the way terrorism happens today they was happening in Jesus's day but the Romans could see what was going on and they would have had someone there watching and they would have noticed that everyone in town is at the temple celebrating and that there's this massive change happening and they don't know where Caiaphas is but there's someone who's come in and said they're in charge and Caiaphas isn't in charge anymore Jesus kicks out, so you know, in a couple weeks we'll get to this, but Caiaphas is the guy who puts Jesus on trial, has him arrested, and has him killed. It's not like Jesus didn't know this was going to happen. Because Jesus walks right up to the most powerful religious and political people he can find and metaphorically punches them in the face. He rolls into town and the crowd says he's the king. And then he goes into the most important place in town and kicks out the people who are supposed to be there and starts inviting in people who aren't supposed to be there and know they're not supposed to be there but really want the freedom and the hope that Jesus offers. If Jesus isn't divine, then this is an attempted political coup, right? And this is how it's handled because Jesus' opponents don't believe that he's the Son of God. If Jesus' claims about his divinity are true, then he is pronouncing a massive amount of judgment on the people who think they're right with God. There's kind of two groups that Jesus has to point out here, right? 
Jesus invites in the people who know that they're, like they know inside that they're not supposed to be there, the children, the blind, the lame, the deformed, the people whose society has told them you belong on the outside. And Jesus kicks out the people who are there making it more efficient. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church or that has like a building, but if you're in a church that has a building and it has carpet, it's like a guarantee you have a carpet Nazi in your church, right? You have someone who my grandma sold her family heirloom to pay for that carpet, and when you actually tell them objectively it's the ugliest carpet you've ever seen, it's the most offensive thing you could possibly say to them. And then when you're away and you let your youth group volunteers run youth group one night and the game is based on marshmallows <laughs> and marshmallows are squished into the entire carpet in your church lobby, not that this happened, and then the carpet Nazi from your church walks in and reams your volunteers who are actually there staying. It's a half hour after youth group ended and the kids went home and they're actually there staying, cleaning marshmallow out of the carpet, mostly out of fear of the carpet Nazi. <laughs> I won't tell you the carpet Nazi's name, but, but there is every church I've ever been to, there are people who are just so ardently passionate about the system or the structure that they are, lose the ability to notice the joy and the inclusion and the accessibility that those things create. Like if eventually we have a building, uh, the building will be a joy because it will create accessibility for people to be able to move towards God, to have an encounter with God, to know Jesus, to have a building and celebrate it at the expense of the humans actually goes against everything that Jesus is trying to do here. The temple was actually rebuilt. It's called Herod's Temple because it was rebuilt by Herod the Great, refinished and like new foundations and floorings were all put in so that it would last forever. It didn't work out. It was destroyed 70 years later. But anyways, when this was all rebuilt, this would be the most beautiful place that these people had ever been to. And taking care of the temple would be a primary function of the religious system. And Jesus rolls in and stops it completely. Like, we can't, like if we weren't a disciple of Jesus, and maybe if we were, we can't imagine that we'd be on Jesus' side. Because in these moments, we'd be thinking, Jesus, you're, how are these people supposed to worship God now? Like, there are people who are here and want to be here and should be here, and Jesus, you're messing with that. And Jesus pronounces judgment on that exactly. We like to look at this passage and say, Jesus is angry at the religious people. And, and, and really, those religious people. But as soon as we have the attitude of someone else, we've put ourselves in the camp of religious people. Do you see that? Like if you uh, read this passage and, you, and Jesus is obviously bringing in the people who aren't supposed to be there. But if you've ever thought that thought like, oh, those people, I can't believe they act like that during the week and then show up at church on Sunday. 
And not rejecting their hypocrisy, but just rejecting their willingness to be in a room with other people who are seeking God, that puts you in a camp where Jesus is throwing your tables and kicking the chair out from underneath you. It's a kind of a dangerous place to be. Because Jesus isn't going in here and trying to um, explain things to the religious establishment. He's directly judging the religious establishment. And it is, I think, one of the trickiest things about following Jesus is not becoming part of a religious establishment that actually rejects Jesus because of the structure. This is one of the reasons I love having children in the beginning of our service. Because they don't behave, they make noise, they spill stuff all over the place, right? And as soon as we say we need to take that away, the children will hear, I'm not supposed to be here. Because eating popcorn and making a mess and spilling things isn't something they do, it's who they are. <laughs> right? Like, by definition, this is what children are going to do when they're in a room and people are standing and sitting and the chairs are moving and you see your friend and it drops, right? And as soon as we reject that, and this is the easiest and most simple example, but as soon as we reject someone saying they shouldn't be at this place because they don't have the qualifications or the behavior or something like that, we've put ourselves against Jesus. Because Jesus opens up to the church to all the people who kind of are there but kind of know that they're not allowed to be there. It might be you today. Like you might have showed up going, if people knew what I thought or what I felt, or what I struggled with, they probably wouldn't let me be here. Or at least they wouldn't sit in my row, or they wouldn't talk to me, or those kinds of things. And what Jesus actually does is kicks the judge, like kicks out the institutional people and invites in the people who have this knowledge inside of them that they're unacceptable. This is the God that we serve. And so when you want to behave in a way that Jesus behaves, Jesus actually moves towards those who know that they're far from God. Jesus actually sides with the powerless, not the powerful. Like if Jesus wanted to be king, a much better way to go about it would be to join the chief priests to join up with, with, with what is happening and rise in the rank and eventually maybe be voted chief priest himself and then he can actually change the things that Caiaphas had done and make reforms in the system, work within the system. But Jesus isn't just judging the people, he's judging the entire system itself. A system of worship of God which has inclusion of a select and exclusion of a certain people. And he judges that in the, the court of the Gentiles. Like he opens this up for the people who aren't a part of the inside crowd. 
We often talk about that the gospel, the word, the gospel of Jesus, the story of Jesus is good news. This is good news. That the people who feel like they don't deserve God, who feel like their story and their exposure to Christianity tells them that they belong on the outside, are the exact people that Jesus is making room for. The people who feel like they deserve it, or feel like they've earned it, or feel like they are a part of the structure and the system, are the people that Jesus is pushing out. And not calmly, but violently. And so if you're here, and there's something inside of you that lets you know that if people knew what you thought, or what you doubted, or what you believed, or what you struggled with, that you would be rejected, I want you to know something. You would be rejected by the people who are a part of the institution. You would be welcomed by the people who know Jesus and know Jesus because he created space for them, all of them, created space for them and their doubts and their problems and their mess and their mistakes and their history and their baggage. Jesus is inviting those of us who feel like we don't deserve Jesus. Jesus is bringing in and making space for the people who aren't good enough and the people who struggle and the people who maybe never will be good enough. Those are the people that Jesus brings in. The institution is going to push against that. It's going to. And maybe if you're already a Christian or already committed to Jesus and maybe have been for a long time, the struggle, and it's not like you ever arrived because there's going to be a struggle for the rest of your life to fight against the institutionalization of your faith. And the only way to win that struggle is to allow Jesus to come into your life and start throwing things. Jesus is making a whip in the corner of your heart and he's going to hit you with it. And we welcome that. <laughs> we welcome the change and the discipline that Jesus brings to our life. Because we need to create space in our life for the people who feel like they don't deserve it. Because we know, and the Bible teaches, that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us and died for us. Not once you were good enough. <laughs> Not once you earned it, or once you showed some promise, or once you had some like potential while you were still a sinner, while you still belonged in the court of the Gentiles, while you probably couldn't have even got into the place where we worshiped God, Jesus died for you at that moment. And we respond to that gift that God offers by repenting of our sin and turning away from that old way of life and moving into the Christ life that God offers, life with Jesus. It's an invitation that Jesus actually puts out there to the people who feel like they don't deserve that invitation. If that's you today, the invitation is plain and it's available and you're welcome to it, to follow Jesus, to repent and turn away from your sin, to ask God to forgive you for your old life and begin to move forward. Begin to allow Jesus to change you. Not change you and then you can commit or change you and then save you 
but actually save you from the destructive nature of what sin is doing in your life. And if that is true for you a long time ago, then I really believe this story actually pushes against our tendency towards institutionalization, towards efficiency in our faith, towards judgmentalism of those who maybe are outside of our faith. Jesus is pushing hard against that. And so we're going to pray together and then worship God together because of who we are and where we are, exactly where we are. Not because of where we're going or where we have been, but because of our acceptance by God no matter what. The old cliche phrase is rather true that at the foot of the cross, the ground is rather even. And we all stand in the same place when Christ is risen. Is lifted up. Let's pray. Let's stand, actually, and let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Our God, we turn to you with our hearts standing together, actually in a weird symbolic way, all standing together at one level, at one time, because all of us together are people in need of your grace and your forgiveness. For those of us who have been far from you and thought that you would have nothing to do with us, we pray that you would move in hearts today, maybe for the very first time, maybe renew a commitment that, that we made a long time ago that has grown cold because of our experience with the institution. And allow us to have a personal, one-to-one, face-to-face relationship with you, Jesus, in prayer and in your word and in your spirit. And then, God, there's many of us here who may have fallen into the institution. And we like literally pray that you would bring judgment against us that would cause us to change our ways. That you would, in, our, like in a way, in our hearts, that you would be throwing tables and kicking the chairs out from underneath us and just outrageously changing our heart and keeping our heart as soft as yours that we would invite in the people into our hearts and into our lives and into our realm of caring, the people who, who don't deserve it who know, if you ask them, that Christians are judgmental of them, we pray that you would open us to them in a way that allows us to express your love. Cause us, Jesus, not to be the judge, because you are, but allow us to be the expression of your love and your kindness, which actually brings about repentance. By your grace, we pray this. By your grace, and by your aggressive, aggressive grace. Amen.